0: What's up, Morning Shakeout listeners? It's your host, Mario Fraoli, and you are listening to the 50th and final episode of the year, our annual best of compilation of highlights from 12 of the most impactful conversations that I've had over the past 12 months. This is simultaneously my most and least favorite episode of the year to put together. I love it because it gives me an opportunity to revisit all of the amazing conversations that I had in 2021. I hate it because narrowing the list down to just 12 that stood out is an excruciatingly impossible challenge. I might be biased, but I think they're all pretty special. It's the honor and the privilege of a lifetime to be in conversation each week with athletes, coaches, advocates, and others who teach me something about running, coaching, or living a better life. In turn, it's an incredible gift to be able to record those exchanges and then share them with all of you through this podcast. Thank you to all of the guests who took the time out of their day to field my questions and quench my curiosity. And thank you to all of you who listened in each week. I hope these conversations have the same impact on you that they've had on me and help you see what's possible for yourself through the lens of running. Whether you've listened to one episode of the podcast or all of them, I'm tremendously grateful for your interest and support. Speaking of support, this episode of the podcast is made possible by Recover Athletics and the members of our Patreon community. Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kaflesky to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises plyometrics and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. I've been using the Recover Athletics app to keep my perpetually grumpy left ankle happy and the combination of pre-run mobility and post-run band work and single leg strengthening exercises has made a huge difference. You can check it all out for yourself in my Strava feed. Recover Athletics is available only in the iOS app store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. Your first custom prehab program is free, and they have an unlimited free trial. If you like it and want to upgrade, their premium subscription offering costs less than one trip to a PT. Trust me, it is totally worth it. The Morning Shakeouts Patreon community is where super fans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly interact with me and also gain access to some exclusive content like the weekly rundown which is a Patreon only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, a monthly coach's corner podcast that will debut in 2022, and other fun perks such as merchandise and behind the scenes sneak peeks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com/support. A big thank you to all of you who are already members. Your support means so much to me and will help keep the morning ShakeOut sustainable for a long time to come. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Let's dive into this one with episode 142. This was the first episode of the year, and it was with Alexi Pappas. We talked about her new book, which is called Bravey, how it came to be, and the process of writing it. We also discuss the power of imagination, personal responsibility, approaching our mental health the same way that we do our physical health, and a lot more. Alexi has an amazing energy to her, and it really comes out in this conversation. Have you always been good at hyper-focusing, or is that something that you learned for yourself over time?
1: I, mm, let's see, I think it's in my nature to, to do it. I think I have some, um, I don't know if it's like a attention like thing where I, if I'm interested in something, I'm really in it. Um, but where it does become challenging is if I'm not clear with myself on what my priorities are and what my goals Mm. are. I think that's where we can get really if we don't know what the most important thing to do in a day is or in a moment, then like we will become more like leaves blowing with every breeze. And so I think there have been times in my life where if I wasn't clear with myself on my own priorities or my goals, mm-hmm. then I was behaving more like a leaf and being blown around. And I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything, but I think I've grown and tried to be more like a tree where there's some roots, but you could still feel the breeze and... Um, you know, the, I say this thing tomorrow starts tonight and I really mean it when I say like, I just prepare as best I can for the next day or the next thing I'm doing so that I give myself the best chance at attacking what my North star is first.
0: How often do you do that sort of self check-in?
1: so like on what my goals actually are or
0: yeah when you're when you're trying to identify what your priorities are for the next day or for the following month or even for say the next 4 years as an olympic athlete
1: yeah okay that's a such a fabulous question because so zooming out to the last part the like 4 years the 4 year view i've never ever planned anything 4 years in advance and i think that is so important because had i planned even you know four or five years in advance I think I would have put a ceiling on what I was capable of um, because let you know like the, the junior in college me had never even yet scored a team point so how could I visualize that I might be able to run an Olympic standard time like it, it would have been if I had to say then what I was gonna do in five years I would have not given myself the chance. so I've never planned more than a year in advance to be honest, with goals and with hopes, because I assume that I will outgrow what I might expect if I let myself. But as far as the short term, I try, I mean, you know, every evening I'm going through with my partner, Jeremy, what the plan is for the next day. We have a Google calendar. It's synced up with my, everything from my weights training to my you know, our writing time, meetings, phone calls, family dinners. It's all we try. We try to keep this one calendar. So that's like on the practical level. Um, and then we also try to have conversations as like a family about what our North stars are and what our priorities are. And then we allow them to shift as doors open. So like before we had a, television deal, for example, we couldn't dream that th- the TV show could be a priority of ours. But once that door opens, then we have family meetings and we recalibrate what is important to us. Where does this fit in on the to-do list? And so it is it is an ever-shifting thing. Um, and so I guess to answer your question, I plan every day. I don't plan more than a year in advance. And I try to allow myself the grace to reshift priorities as new information comes in and opportunities.
0: We've only got a short amount of time left here, and I want to go back to the book, and this is probably my favorite line from what I've been able to read so far. I'm about halfway through, and you wrote, sometimes it hurts to know that you can do it. It's an intimidating thing to realize because it means that the only person who can really define your growth and happiness is yourself. There is no shortcut to becoming your best self. The responsibility is on you. I loved that line, and I'd love to dig into it a little bit with you here. Why do you think that so many of us lack that self-confidence and try to push off personal responsibility, whether it's running work or relationships or some other aspect of our life.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's just easier to find a reason why we can't succeed rather than understand that there's always a way to pivot and keep going. It's always easier to, to find the reasons why we can't. And I draw this distinction in the book between those who are, interested versus those who are committed to a goal or a dream and there's the it's the biggest distinction in the world because I think those who are merely interested are going to find those reasons why it just wasn't there it wasn't possible whatever it is and it's very easy to find those reasons and I think those who are committed just see you know they see failure as a part of success, as a part of the process. And they always see uh, p- opportunities to pivot. There's never, there's always a way to keep going. Um, and that question that I had to ask myself was one that I've had to ask myself a lot. But when I was little, I, oh, I felt sad that I felt different. Like I felt sad that I didn't have a mom. I felt sad that it didn't feel fair that other people had this person that could tell them, you know, all the things that I imagined a mom tells kids, which maybe they do, maybe they don't, but I just didn't have it. And it would have been easy to just be sad and just sit there and use it as an excuse as to why I couldn't do X, Y, or Z because I didn't have this thing. But deep inside, I knew that I could do it. It was just going to hurt and gonna take time. I'm gonna be challenging, and uh, but it hurts because because you know you can. Like it's like a sweet, sweet kind of kind of realization. It's like su- it's the sweetest thing when you're like, "Ah, oh, I know I can do this. I just have to try my best, you know." And then keep trying my best. It's like, man, it's so sweet. I think it's the sweetest thing.
0: Episode 144 was with Craig Curley. This one holds a lot of meaning for me personally. Craig doesn't do a lot of media, he's a pretty shy guy, doesn't like the spotlight, but he's an incredible runner and a heck of a human being, and I'm honored that he took the time to speak with me. Craig and I really connected over this conversation, and I began coaching him a couple months later, and it's blossomed into a beautiful relationship. We hit on a lot of different topics in this conversation, from the connection that Craig feels to the trails in the mountains, to his life growing up on a Navajo reservation in Arizona, and how he balances living in the modern world without getting too far away from his Navajo roots. We also discussed his relationship to running and how it's evolved over the years, not wasting his gifts and talents, serving as a role model for other Native Americans, and a lot more. How do you balance living in this modern world without getting too far away from your Navajo roots
2: yeah that's a challenge every day like for instance uh, when I went to college uh, it's all about your studies and trying to further whatever you're trying to do at a time it was running because uh, for me growing up uh, I was taught that you don't really ask for things like, and that was a, sh- that got me, made things so challenging for me growing up because I would have asked for things that I needed. Uh, and so I want to tell anyone that's listening, like when you need something, ask for it. Like uh, it's hard to do, but uh, it, everyone needs help. And, like, when I learned that uh you could ask for help, it made things so much easier, and people it was just a way of communication, even if they couldn't help you. it was just they got a better understanding of you and getting back to how challenging it is to be Navajo and uh live in modern times is that uh I don't want to be just a descendant of Navajo. Uh, I want to keep the culture and part of that is learning the language and that's what I've been working on over these years and learning the stories and traditions because uh, I could never be Anglo-American. If you just look at me, I couldn't blend in even if I cut up my hair, bleach my hair, whatnot. I am Navajo and I want to keep my my tradition and because that's who I am. I can't be anybody else. I can't be like a horse or anything like that or a dog or anything. I only can be what I am, what I was born into this world. May I share a story real quick? Yes, please. Yeah. So, uh, so while I was in high school, um, what made me have uh, the decision to really make running, like give it a real go, because I feel like I'm giving it a go now. I feel like I took years to, of uh, uh, like rest to recover.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, one year, like in the summertime, we would take our sheep to our, we'd call it sheep camp, which was, another place that we had, that was really like beautiful. They had uh Pinarosa uh, pines, so, like these really tall trees. Mm-hmm. And that was one of our places that was passed down to us from our grandparents. And I would be up there with, uh, there's no phone at the time. No, still to this day, you probably could get little reception. But I would be up there with a big flock of sheep. Like people say they have sheep nowadays, which is probably like forty. But we had lots of sheep, and we I would go up there with a, a horse and a rifle, my whip. I'd be out there all on my own, and every afternoon there would just be these real big uh, popcorn clouds, real fluffy. And I would always wait for it to come because. In the morning, it would be just clear skies, blue skies, sun shining, and it'd be really hot. And then when those clouds would come in in the afternoon, it would just be like 10 degrees cooler and the breeze, you would actually feel the breeze. And it was just so great. And one of these times when the clouds were coming in, uh, lightning was around and the sheep were getting scared, and I was like, "I can't control them. Like they want to do what I wanted them to do, get them to a safe place, away from uh, like from scattering, because there's other bigger animals out there that will eat them." And uh, it just started pouring rain, and I had my dad's brand new saddle out on the horse, and I didn't want to get it wet. I was like, "I didn't want to ruin it for him." So like I was trying to get the sheep going and uh, I was chasing these sheep and they were just so frightened that they were hardly even moving and the horse was even scared too. And up there, when you hear the thunder, it echoes and the horse was just like not having it. And I was like, all right. So I just got, unmounted off the horse, got the saddle, and took it off and started to carry it and uh uh left the horse tied him up and right when i was getting ready to uh get all the sheep into the corral uh i hear this i don't even hear anything i just see this uh light flash and i can't see nothing and uh, I feel things coming down on my hat and on my clothes, and I don't know what it is. It feels like hell, and it's it's actually uh pine needles from a tree near me, and there was four sheep there that uh that were dead that were in the same area that I was. And I saw like smoke from the tree from the top of it and a ring that goes around the trunk of the tree. And to me, it was like, I am a kid, but I'm responsible for my life and what I want to do in this world. And whatever silly thing that I'm good at, I'm going to pursue it and not look back. I believe I could be super fast and I don't want to waste those gifts. And that was kind of my moment of, I'm going to do this running thing. Uh, Because in the beginning, it was really easy to be like, I quit running. Like I don't need to run competitively. Uh, I don't need to do any of that. But, When that happened to me that event it it changed me in the sense that there's a lot of people that had different gifts and uh they don't use it and i wanted to make sure i use my gifts because i think if we all use our gifts we could do something really special not for ourselves but for our family and our if we're really good we could do something for our community wherever we live
0: This next one is also a very special episode to me. It's episode 145 with Danae Doremi, host of The Grounded Podcast. I got connected with Danae through the Tracksmith Fellowship Program, and I've served as her mentor as she's gotten her show off the ground and grown it into what I think is one of the most unique and important podcasts in the running space. Danae, who, like Craig in the previous episode, is a citizen of Navajo Nation, grew up in a running-crazy family. In this conversation, we spoke about the idea for her podcast and when and how she decided to make it a reality. Danae also told me about what it was like growing up in that running crazy family, how her own relationship to the sport has evolved over the years, and how running helps her connect to the land. We also talked about opening up more connection points for runners within the sport, diversifying the voices that we hear from, and a lot more. In the remaining time that we have here, I want to shift the conversation back toward your relationship with running. Earlier, you mentioned how at times you've struggled to find your place as a runner. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more with you. What did you mean when you said that you had a hard time finding your place as a runner?
4: I think initially when I started running cross country, it was just for the fun of it. And I didn't think a lot about anything. And as I, as I got older, I started to recognize that running, I think in, in an adult sort of mainstream professional sense, the running industry, if you will, was very, very white and, and looked, or at least looked very white to me and looked very, um, just, one dimensional. Like I think for me, I, that's what I saw initially, obviously it's so much more than that. And I've, I've found a great community here, but I think once I started running again after college, um, and I, and I had the opportunity to really throw myself into, um, the running community on social media and stuff like that, I realized like, oh, okay, I get, I'm, I'm a larger bodied runner, which is a term that I, uh, Am kind of stealing from my nutritionist Starla Garcia, and um, she's helped me work through a lot of these things because I am just like a naturally bigger person, and I it's challenging to like find running clothes and find the right shoes for me because I have accessory navicular syndrome, and I'm constantly getting flare ups from that. And I think to grow up in a household that values running so much, where my dad was running at such a, a highly competitive level who, and he had like no mechanical issues right <laughs> of course like some something happened in the in the gene pool for you, me you didn't get, I, those yeah. did get those genes <laughs> yeah um so my family always loves to laugh about that it's kind of like a joke um between all of us is so i did not inherit my dad's like very perfect running gait um but for me, I had like very flat feet. Um, you know, I'm a heavy overpronator. I like really. I think I struggle because of my asthma. It seemed like all the cards were stacked against me. Essentially, when you add up all the barriers, <laughs> um, in that sense, it just felt like that. But I think once I started framing it for myself, instead of like, oh, I'm gonna, um, you know, I'm going to feel sorry for myself about this because it, it is really hard. Like, I had I had a lot of years in there where I would cry sometimes because I would think to myself like, man, I just like can't get any faster. And I know anyone listening who's dealt with that. It's a really frustrating feeling to feel like you put a lot of work in to a training cycle or to a major goal. And then maybe you don't see the results that you want. Um, that was a really important like lesson for me. And I think I've really just been building my resilience since high school where, you know, it's just it's not in the cards for me to be a professional runner. And that's totally fine. And it's just taken me a long time to come to terms with the fact that like, my running is valid, and that I deserve, you know, all the same resources and access that other people do. Because for me, I'm somebody who's been interested in acquiring a running coach. I'm working with a nutritionist now, like I mentioned. And I used to believe that I didn't deserve those things because I was a slower runner and I ran pretty average paces that for other people might be cool down times. Right. And so I think I stopped comparing myself to people and just understanding that like my running journey is valid. I've never struggled to actually call myself a runner. That's not been my insecurity. I, I know I've been, ai know I've been a runner my whole life, but I've struggled to just feel like I deserved those tools and those, um, those things. So, those are things I'm like chasing now because I'm like, okay, you know, I I do have a place in this community and and my journey is valid and and I still deserve to have goals and want to improve. So, I'm looking more into how I can be the best best version of myself,
0: which is going to help other people become the best versions of themselves and to build off of that. What advice would you give to other runners who are listening? to this who are struggling to find their place in the sport?
4: I would say just to reflect on your experience while running and really use that, that hopefully joy that you feel and exhilaration, but also exhaustion and other things. And to find a place in your heart to be grateful for those things and to um, recognize that those things are building strength in you right now. Because that's something that I think I've learned is even if a run is super hard, like I probably I got a lot of joy from that. So I try really hard to finish a run and always reflect on the fact that I either listen to some really like great music that really inspired me, or I had an awesome idea on that run, or I felt like I could, you know, smell the, the the oncoming rainstorm, you know, that's brewing ahead. Like I really try to reflect on why I love running in the first place. And I'm, you know, I really I'm not trying to be like cheesy and fluffy about it. Like I really love the actual physical action of running. <laughs> and I think that if you really love that, you will find a way to keep going because that's ultimately what's worth it. And, and I think, you know, if you are a, a, a slower paced runner, um, you know, that's fine. Like I've learned to own my pace and recognize that I deserve to have goals. And even if, you know, that goal is, is knocking just a few seconds off of your mile pace or something like that. Um, and you're comparing yourself to others on Strava, like, just keeping in mind that it's your story and and it's all it's all about you in that moment. And I think like in that sense, that is where I try to center myself and remember that I'm really blessed to be able to do this. And I'm really um, grateful that, yes, my feet have a lot of issues, but they also carry me every day across the land. So <laughs> I think just like I keep those things in mind and remember that there is a brighter future ahead and that I do have... Um, you know, I do have the capability to improve. So, yeah.
0: (laughs) Episode 146 was with Nathan Martin. Nathan broke out in a big way at the Marathon Project in December 2020, running a big personal best of 211.05 to finish ninth overall. It was a personal best by over three minutes and also the fastest marathon ever run by a black man born in the United States. We talked about what his accomplishment means to him and when he realized it was a bigger deal than he originally thought. He also told me about growing up with six sisters, losing both of his parents to cancer and how their passings shaped his life, why it's important for him to serve as a role model and give back to his community, and a lot more. Back to the mile and a third in the sixth grade. It sounds like it was more just trying to, to better your place that was attractive to you than it was enjoying the act of running itself
5: yeah uh i mean it was yeah i would say like initially it was like you you felt like you're gonna do well and you're gonna beat all these people and it's not like it doesn't it didn't work out that way like obviously as a kid you know you're competing with with however many people you can compete with but um Yeah, I think um, again, I I must have been like maybe crazy or didn't understand stuff because clearly in seventh grade that wasn't the case. Like there were so many times where there were so many people who might have been able to beat me, they're just like no, I didn't. I'm like, what do you mean you're not gonna try? And like I didn't, my brain didn't process that. I'm like, you're supposed to give what you have. Like I, I don't know. Like it's just kind of how I thought as a kid.
0: Were you always a pretty determined kid?
5: um you know I don't know if determined like we I had a me and my friends we like I guess I was more of the non-crazy one but I had some pretty intense friends growing up to the point where it's like I look back at it and I'm like why in the world did I hang out with those kids but um you know and we would always go and do crazy stuff I think and when I was which I for some I don't know why I thought this was a good idea but me and my friend decided to bike like six miles and it was like through the city across a whole bunch of traffic and stuff like that just to get to get to Myers, so we could go and buy something from there and we were i want to say we were like 11 maybe 12 or something like that and he luckily i didn't get grounded but he got grounded and i'm like what the heck happened He's like yeah it was probably stupid we did that and and so yeah I, I guess we were ambitious or i was ambitious with what we did but it was just like more of the mentality around the you know people i hung out with i guess so
0: were you pretty competitive with other people from a young age or was it more about just trying to be better than yourself or place higher than you did (sighs) in the mile and a third the year before
5: um i mean i guess if you go to like to like video games and stuff you know i i hate it losing in video games so i was like okay it's time to go let's figure it out um there was one game i used to play it was like star wars battlefront 2 and i would be like i don't care go and 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 you guys can be on a team i'll be on my own team and let's see if you can still beat me type thing and and that was always fun and and yeah i don't know i guess it was uh highly
0: competitive stuff so going a little further down that line i read a quote from your coach in an article and one of the things he said about you that stood out to me and is relevant to this part of the conversation is he said he can race let's just dig into that a little bit further have you always been a good racer do you like the chess match of it
5: yeah i mean again i like pushing myself and and like that's one thing about running too like you you can argue there's not a lot a crazy amount of technical stuff though. Know, like when you get into some of those track events like hurdles and stuff is crazy technical but um you know it, it's that idea that it's 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 your will um you know versus like what your body's kind of telling you right or you know in some cases like you're you're fighting against somebody else so um just being able to get into a race and say you know what it's time to go and just test your body is what I gravitate towards and like don't get me wrong sometimes I'll do that and I'm like why in the world did I do that I am in so much pain but um yeah a lot of the time it's just awesome that that I have the opportunity to do that and you know, I'm not necessarily a person who's going to back down from somebody. Sometimes I'll be cautious, like, okay, this is not the right time to be making these moves. But, you know, when it comes down to the last little bit of the race, if I have something in me, I'm going to push hard. I'm going to try and dig as deep as I can to finish. So,
0: Okay, this next one was one of the longest episodes in this podcast's history at two hours even, and honestly, it could have easily gone on for another two hours. It's episode 149 with Keith Kelly, who is someone that I go back over 20 years with to when we were both competing on the New England collegiate racing scene. He was an NCAA Division I National Cross Country Champion at Providence College, and I, well... I participated in some of the same events that he did from way further back in the field. We struck up a friendship a few years later when we both started working in the running industry, and our paths have been crisscrossing ever since. In this episode, Keith talked to me about his athletic career, his extensive injury history, and when he knew that running was something his body could no longer tolerate. We discussed his interest in cycling, how he channeled his fitness and competitiveness into his new sport, and what he misses most about running. We also talked about how the pandemic has affected the running industry, how super shoes are changing the sport, and a lot more. A few more things before we wrap up this conversation. I want to steer it back to you and your career. One of the things that I always admired about you as an athlete, and I think this extends beyond what you've done as a runner and a cyclist, is your ability to just go so deep into the well and to pour the entirety of yourself into whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a running race and you're trying to place as high as you can, or in your day-to-day job, trying to do the best job that you can for the brand that you work for. Where does that come from in you? Just this ability to go so hard and to dig so deep, regardless of the situation.
6: Uh, I think, you know, I've gotten a little bit softer. I think, uh, uh, at one time, that was that was very very true, and I think it just comes from where I came from, my parents and and uh, the desire to I Mario I was a running nerd in high school. Like, I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking posters on my wall of Steve Cram and 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 Steve Ovette, and I, I desperately wanted to be good at running, and that that desperation meant that like you know what I didn't have the the best running form and I didn't have I, I was missing some things, but I, I could will myself to to win races and I could will myself to 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 blackout. Uh basically because I, w- I was like, this is my opportunity to get to the United States and to get to the college system. And then you get to the college system and then you're like, okay, wow, now I realize I'm not that good because there's so many guys that are good. So I'm gonna have to get ready to hurt myself to get really, really good at running in the college system. And then you get to that level. And then for me after that was just constantly breaking. So I could never really go as deep as I wanted because I would break. But I don't know where the desire to win comes from other than the desire to 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 just feel like I've done my best and to know that when I when it's all said and done that you know, I can't really have any regrets. You know, if, if it was Reebok and we were getting a paycheck from Reebok, I had to know that I was doing my best for Reebok and I was doing the right thing by, by Reebok who are paying me. And I think that's instilled in a lot of people. I don't think I'm unique in, in that sense. Um, uh, but the, the ability to, to, to go hard and to, to, to hurt yourself. Yeah. I think some athletes have it better than others. And I, I would put myself. Maybe I could, at times, go go fairly deep. And uh, I don't know really where where that comes from. You know, I, I think it's uh, I think it's one of those things where it was more it was more of a desire just to know I've I've done my best. And if my best wasn't good enough, which in many times it wasn't, that's okay because then I could walk away and be like, well, that's as good as I am. And I think knowing that gives every, can give any athlete a, a little sense of peace or a sense of calm. But uh, yeah, wanting to win is nice and, and it's, a, it's a lot of fun to try your best and to know, to know you did your best. And if your best is good enough, then that's really, really good. That's the, that's the happy place. And I've been fortunate, Mario, to have maybe five or six times in, in my short running career where I did accomplish the goal I set. I went really hard. It wasn't easy. I had to go at times above what I thought I was capable of. And that's the most satisfying feeling in the world. For me, it was like I wanted to finish top 30 in the World Cross Country Championships. I finished 22nd. I knew I went as hard as I could. I knew to get 21st would have been, you know, there's not really much else I could have done to get 21st. So that was feeling good. Or to win nationals and cross, I wanted to win the race. I won it in the last, you know, 50 meters. I couldn't have done much more. If someone was ahead of me, I couldn't have caught them. So knowing you've given yourself 100% into whatever you're doing, And if it comes off, it's the best feeling in the world. So it's maybe chasing that feeling a little bit. One thing
0: you said earlier in this conversation that caught me by surprise that I wanted to follow up on is when you said you've had issues with confidence in the past, and it was in the context of racing that you had mentioned it earlier. I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into that. What do you mean that you've had confidence issues, whether it's
6: in racing or other areas of your life? Well, because I was really good at cross-country running and then, you know, I this this is going to sound cocky, but I don't mean it to be cocky at all because it just is what it is, but I could, I was never worried about racing anybody in cross-country. Uh, maybe I was a little bit worried when Alan Webb showed up to, to, to Marys Cup, but for the most part, if I was fit, I kind of knew I was going to be very hard to beat on a cross-country course. I would take that same field and put us on a track. And I just, I'd look at other people running around me. They were taller than me because I was so hunched and so broken. And a lot of getting beaten down on the track eroded all my confidence. So I would go to track meets and I wouldn't expect ever to win a race. And that sucked when you're coming off a cross country, a cross country that, I was very confident of winning. So, you know, even when I won nationals and cross, I was in great shape indoor. When we, in that 3K, when we when we passed you, with a it, it, have to go. I was in great shape. <laughs> and I think if I had I had the confidence that I was carrying around when I was in the cross-country mode, I think I might have run, you know, 750 that day instead of 755 or 56 or whatever we ran. I probably would have maybe one nationals in the 5k instead of finishing third and letting David Kamani and and Matt Lane run away from me in the cross country. I wouldn't have let that happen, but I was just, I was always running scared and the track never felt comfortable to me. And yeah, I definitely lacked confidence. And and by the end, I had no confidence on the track. I I, I stopped the the dream of going to the Olympics because I was like, I'm just not good enough for it. I wish there was an Olympics for cross country. Um, so com- confidence is, is, is something that, that for me was always tough to attain, but I grew in confidence in cross country. And then I grew in confidence in my professional career, uh, because I, I really was comfortable with what I was doing, but on the track, too many injuries getting, getting my doors blown off too much, not being able to have that nice speed endurance sweet spot on the track. I could either go really, really fast or, or fairly slow. I was terrible at that. You know, sixty four second lap pace that you needed to be really good at for a five k in the track. I was never comfortable at that pace, and yeah, I had no confidence that I was ever going to be successful on the track. Especially after about two thousand one, very quickly it went downhill. So I think it affected me tremendously when I had the opportunity to do well. I would create excuses in my head before the race. You know this concept, and Mario. I think a lot of runners do it. You probably did it yourself, where you convince yourself that you're sick or you've got a head cold or you've got a niggle. You're making up Mm -hmm. the excuse before the race. I never did that in cross country ever. And, in the track I did it all the time. I was like, what am I going to tell Ray when I get beaten today? Like, that's a terrible attitude to have. And yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why it was. I just think it was a, it was a combination of, it felt like an alien sport to me. The most beautiful part and the most popular part of, of running is, is the track. And it was the thing i was weakest at and the piece that's probably least popular in distance running is cross country and that's the one thing i was really good at which is why i'm happy the ncaas is going to be shown on espn for the next few years and i just why, saw that announcement yeah mm-hmm. and it's why i love cross country running because it gives people like me who are not the most elegant track runners the opportunity to to race and compete and win against re- olympic level track runners
0: Episode 160 was one of those rare ones where I had two guests, but it was also a bit of a novelty in that I got to record it in person. My guests were Jorge Maravilla and Stephanie Howe, and while we talked a little about running, we mostly got into how their relationship came to be, navigating new beginnings, their different backgrounds growing up, and becoming parents together. All of this was intertwined around themes of respect, trust, community, exploration, and a lot more. Aside from you being an energetic kid and wanting to fill up these buckets with citrus fruit, how much of it was taking on the challenge of your mom being like, how many of these can you fill in, I don't know, an hour or whatever it was? Yeah, I think, you know, thinking back on
7: it now, uh, I think I thrived on challenge. Yeah. And I think looking through my life as it is even today, I like challenges and uh, it's something that's just in me, you know, I, I thrive on challenges. I like nothing
0: in my life has been easy, so I don't know any different. That's why I ask because knowing you as, as I do, whenever you're faced with some kind of adversity, no matter where it comes from, as hard as it might be for you to work through you, accept it and find a way to do that. And That's why I asked that question because I feel like it had to start at at that point of your life. Like that's just, I mean, some people can learn those types of skills like as you get older, but others it's just ingrained in them. And it sounds like that ability to confront a challenge, accept it, and then find a way to work through it was just instilled in you from what, the age of five or so.
7: Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think my, by no means is my story like isolated. I think that's just the immigrant way, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you deal with adversity. You don't just face it. You deal with it. You work with it and you move on to progress and evolve. And uh, you know, I've been saying even since the pandemic, all of this adversity that we've been dealing with, you know, adversity is nothing new to me. Um, I, I'm officially claiming that I'm the dean of Adversity <laughs> University, you know? <laughs> like, I, I, like, you know, as, a, as an immigrant, as a, as a brown-skinned man, as, as someone who's like Spanish is my first language, like having to always assimilate, having to always adapt, having always to comfort others with the comfort of who you are. it that's just Those are just daily adversity situations and circumstances that I've existed with. And so adversity is nothing new. And I've dealt with so many other adversities from emotional to life to, you know, just like everybody else. We all have our stuff and it's how you face and deal with those things that build up your character. You know, it's no different than like, yeah, like, sure, maybe I've, placed well in a certain race, and honestly, I hate to say this, but I I can care less how well I do or not, but that moment where we described earlier, where it took me three and a half hours to walk seven miles while I watched Stephanie win Western States, like that to me was very character building and really, really important part of who and what I am today and how I can utilize that as a skill set and a tool set to face life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I think there's a lot to be said for the immigrant story. I mean, you and I have talked about this. Like I was born here in the US. My dad's from Italy, came here when he was 12 years old, not speaking a word of English, played a very similar role to what you did for your mom, where he would go around with my Nana and basically be her interpreter once he learned English. And that was actually one of the ways that he he did learn English. And they ran into all these roadblocks as well. And like, if you talk to my dad, that's just he's like, well, that was just life. He's like, yeah. he's like, I ran into roadblocks everywhere that I went and he was able fortunately to instill that, you know, in me and and my siblings. And I feel really grateful for it. And that's why I I feel, you know, grateful for you to to share your story and other folks that I've had on here too, who come from immigrant backgrounds, because that's one of the, the common denominators. I think that's one of the through lines, like yeah. facing, you know, facing adversity, accepting it as a, a part of life and learning how to work through it, regardless of the form that it takes
7: yeah i I think it 's a wonderful necessity you know it 's something that you know books, education, or money uh, can 't provide you with and it 's an essential uh, necessary experience in life for you to really grow and evolve as a human and to be able to have perspective to not only be the better version of yourself but be a contributing member to your community. I think that's very very valuable.
0: It's fascinating to me as an observer of the sport but also someone who coaches athletes how events like that whether it's having a child even if I mean even for the even for the dad, you know, who didn't give birth to the child or just some other event happens in life that can take an edge off whatever whatever that particular edge is for you, and a byproduct of that is performance improves um, right. and i 've just you know every situation's a little bit different but i 've always just found that to be like really fascinating, and I think there 's a lesson there. For anyone listening to this, whether they're, you know, elite and professional athletes like the two of you are, or they're just an age grouper who takes their hobby very seriously. It's like, you know what, find a way or find something that makes you take your hobby, maybe just a little less seriously. And you may actually take it to a level that you didn't previously know you could get to.
8: Yeah, you just take a step back and you realize like, oh, I'm doing this. I get to do this, not like I have this pressure to do this. And I think for both of us, it's we're both training for like pretty big races. And we're not just training to finish them. We're both right. training to like, do you well. know, do well. And um, I think having Julian is helping us balance it and just not take it so seriously. And it, it's going to ultimately help us in the experience and just like accepting the outcome, whatever it is. Like, I I mean, yeah, I want to do well, but I also don't care. I just think it's going to be cool to go and like run around Mont Blanc, hopefully, um, and then be able to see them at the finish line or actually hopefully throughout the day, yeah. <laughs> throughout the day and the night and the day. Um, and then, you know, we can all celebrate together rather than in the past, just thinking about me. It's just like about me and my performance and like, how am I going to place and all business, all business. And this is more play
0: while still taking it seriously. It's a, it's kind of a, a tricky, a tricky balance, but probably one that you can better achieve at this point.
8: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think so for both of us.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think that the
7: the seriousness of, in, the independent seriousness of each other, we also just balance each other because I respect and value that Stephanie is very much a planner and very much like, hey, these two hours, I'm not available. I am running and I'm not very good at that. I'm very much like, oh, I'm going to go run today, but if it doesn't happen, like it's a great day, like, you know, and Initially in our like relationship, like Stephanie was like, wow, for like, I know the marathon times you've run and what you've done in ultra marathons. You don't take yourself all that seriously. And that was a little surprising to her is what she revealed to me. And I'm like, ah, you know, I, I have fun and I work hard when I
0: need to. But, you well, know. Your energy comes from different it and does. and I think, you know, especially in a relationship like the one the two of you have, it, it's it's interesting to see like to learn that about your partner, it's like, oh, well, we do similar things, but we approach it in different ways. And the things that energize him might like freak you out, and like yeah. the things that <laughs> that, <laughs> that energize accurate. you might drive him <laughs> up the wall. And, and I mean, that's one of the interesting Total things athletic. about just athletics and relationships and the intermingling of the two things.
8: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're balancing each other well, and yeah. I'm giving him a little kick in the butt to get his training going, and it's going well. And he's like helped me just like chill out a little bit and um, kind of just been my number one fan of like, you know, like I'm just kind of starting to get back into running and just like, wow, great job. Like you ran a nine minute mile. That's so amazing. And I need that a lot right now.
0: I absolutely loved episode 165 with Mark Coogan. And I think many of you will too. Mark is the coach of new balance, Boston elite, and two of his athletes Ellie Purrier and Heather McLean represented the US in the 1500 meters at the Tokyo Olympic Games this past summer. Like me, Mark is a proud native of Massachusetts, and in this conversation, we mostly talked about coaching, how Mark got his start in it, and how he's grown the most over the years. He told me about managing his squad's nerves and expectations heading into this past summer's Olympic trials, how they recalibrated during the pandemic, and the lessons that they've learned over the past year. He also described the family culture that his team tries to maintain, coaching his daughter Katrina for the first time, and how he approaches working with a group that's focusing on a wide range of events. Mark also told some great stories like running the race of his life at the 1995 U.S. Championships against Bob Kennedy and a lot more. How do you manage the nerves between now and a big event? like the Olympic trials with a team that is so young.
3: Yeah. I mean, I just, I try to keep it light and I keep, try to, um, I try to tell them to, you know, treat it just like any other race. I, you know, I'm, I'm really straightforward with them because they're adults and they're smart people. Like I tell them like, you know, the more we can treat Eugene like a regular meat and approach it the way we approach all our other meats, the better we're going to do. And if we, you know, put, make, You know, the Olympic trials look like it's the biggest thing ever and they get really stressful. Then, you know, we'll run like we're stressed out and we won't run as well as we should. So I've been just trying to like kind of low key it. We don't talk about the trials every day. You know, we just, it's kind of a process. We just go one day at a time. And, you know, obviously they know they're going to be racing on the 18th, but, you know, we were just looking forward to doing like an eight mile run this morning on a dirt road. You know, that was a fun thing. We didn't talk about the Olympic trials at all. You know, we talked about, you know, getting out for our second run this afternoon and doing some strides, but we didn't we didn't focus on the trials one bit, one bit today. And they're only a week away. So, you know, that,
0: that's kind of how I'm approaching it. Rewinding a year with the Olympics having been postponed, the trials having been postponed, what did you and your squad have to do to recalibrate once everything got shifted back to
3: 2021? Right. So, like, for, for New Balance Boston... It's, you know, COVID has been terrible. You know, a terrible. You know, virus for the whole world and everything. But for my group being so young, having a one-year postponement has actually been good for us because we've got to we've gotten to mature and um, be better runners. So, like you can use Ellie purier as an example. So Ellie, like you know, last year she ran 4:16 in the mile and set the American record. But I think we would have just been happy with her making the Olympic team a year ago, you know, or maybe getting to the finals if she made the team at the Olympics. But this year, if she makes the Olympic team, she's going to be one of the favorites to win a medal in 1,600. So like the years really helped her. Heather, Heather McLean, another um, girl on our team who went to UMass. She's just out of school for a couple of years and she keeps improving every week. You know, she's gone this year. She's, you know, in the last year, she's gone from 203 to 159 in the 800. From when she came on the team, she was a 420 something 1500 meter runner. Now she's a 404 1500 meter runner. And you know, I think she got a real legit shot of you know picking up the third spot in the 1500 next week. So the year absolutely helped her, you know. And all the other women on the team have qualified for the trials, you know, this spring and have all gotten new PRs. So. Um, yeah, so I think the year actually helped us um, become a better team, and uh, it might have hurt some other people. I don't know. You know, hopefully it didn't hurt other people. Hopefully we just improved and uh, can run well next week.
0: How did you think about the training for everyone last year when it became clear that there wasn't going to be an Olympics? It really wasn't going to be any kind of a season did you carry on like business as usual did you give people a break did it depend on where the individual was at i'd love to try and understand that a little bit yeah
3: yeah you know you know what we did was once when when everything got canceled in like february march whenever it was canceled i can't remember like say march when when everything started shutting down what what at first we didn't know exactly what was going to happen so i we just said Let's just pretend to fall all over again and go back into our base phase. So basically, we did another fall, you know, starting in March and took that to like into May. And then, like in May, we knew nothing was really going to happen. So I said, "Well, let's just, you know, pretend we're going to have a little bit of track season here, and we'll just pick up, you know, do some time trials and make up some races, and we'll just do them, you know, with ourselves here in Boston." And so we did some time trials and. You know, July and August, and just kind of wrapped up towards the end of towards the end of August. Gave everybody a week or two off, and then I said, "Well, now we'll just do that again, and like you know, make it like a normal year, and like build build through this year. We'll go back to flag. We'll do decent, do three races, and then you know, do a little build up phase again. Do a couple of races, and then." going to the trials you know the best we can so i think that we just kind of pushed the year forward uh, and when the team started running you know flat four flat things like that in practice it was really good for them and um we we didn't have to hop on a plane with covid we didn't travel any so I, I, it, it turned out pretty cool. You know, it turned out like, all right, even though they weren't real races and the times didn't really count, but we, we knew that we did it, you know, so
0: it was good. What
3: were some of the biggest
0: lessons that you took away as a coach from having the last year completely upended where, you know, there weren't any events, you weren't traveling quite as much that you're able to, you know, apply to the team's build up to this year's trials and potentially beyond. I, I,
3: I think one of the big things that I learned, and I don't think I just learned it last year, but I think I've been learning it ever since I left Dartmouth college is that it's, I mean, I, this seems kind of simple, but it's not just one workout. You know, I think that, that makes, that's going to make you have a good race. I mean, that's pretty simple, but I'd say like I've more come to the conclusion that I'd rather do 20 B plus workouts, you know, over 10 weeks instead of having four A plus workouts four A plus workouts and then go into a race. I think if I can get the consistency of the, this B plus type workout without, you know, when I do those, like I feel like we're not stressing the body so hard that we're going to get injured. I feel like we're still improving, um, getting physically better as a runner, but we're not getting as many little injuries or dinged up or just soreness. And I feel like when we do that, um, and then, Go to a race. We try to do the, do an A plus in the race. It just seems to be working a lot better for me. So I just think just being really consistent over a long period of time. You know, you don't have to have any of these like super duper workouts to prove who you are. And um, just keep the B plus like I, the B plus stuff like I was saying, and then go down and run your races or go to your race. Um, they seem to be going better. And I think my team has been extremely healthy. We haven't had an injury in over a year. And I think it's because um, we've been a little bit conservative and, you know, not missed any workouts. And I just think it's it just worked really well. I don't know if that would work for everybody, but it seems to work well for my group.
0: Okay, episode 166 was a long time coming. It was with one of my most requested guests since I started the show in late 2017, my favorite person in the entire world, my best friend and biggest supporter, my wife, Christine Gould. We spoke a few days after she finished Ironman Coeur d'Alene in 100-plus degree temperatures, and this was a good opportunity to debrief with her about that experience, why she signed up for the event, how it went, and what she learned from it, as well as to learn more about her and how she operates, us as a couple and how we operate, and a lot more. On that last loop, you described how eventually you just started focusing on trying to run 50 strides and then walk 50 strides. Run 50 strides, walk 50 strides. Did you think of anything else to help get you through that last lap, aside from all the work that you put in? Did you have any other let's call them third party motivations. You think at all about the people you had in your corner who have helped you out along the way. I mean, did you think back to any other tough situations that you've been in, whether it was a race or something else that you got through? I'd I'd love to just understand like what else you were pulling from in that really difficult moment.
9: Oh yeah. I mean, I know I have, you know, I've, crowded corner full of people who support me so I you know I've I've you and my family and my coach and I you know the two friends we were staying with were out there in the heat you know cheering for me you know checking in with you um you know I knew I had you know friends at home tracking me you know pulling for me all all of my training partners and friends um so that I mean that's always and but at the same time I know that if if for some reason I really felt like it there was no way I could have could have finished I also know I would have had that support and understanding um, as well and there's only been one triathlon where I've had to pull out and it was a similar situation I overheated but at that point I really was having more serious symptoms at the time and knew it was the right decision. Um I think I just had a little bit of just tunnel vision but just the focus of just moving forward. Um I think I started to think of everything else when I got to the finish line, but when I was out there was like baking along the lake, you know, where it was really hot, all I was really trying to do was just like keep moving forward. And whatever that entailed. So I was just like looking ahead to the next aid station. Like what can I do to keep moving forward? It really became that simple. Which for as busy as my brain can be sometimes with thinking is um, surprising. Because I I really didn't think much beyond that. Because I knew, like I just knew how how hot it was. And just how i you know how else was i going to get to the finish line i'm like i just have to move forward and counting the steps you know doing just like that very simple activity was Staying enough small. To, yes was just enough to keep my focus there and i didn't really let things get bigger and more emotional until i actually like reached the finish line um Even though I've, you know, I've done like countless hard training sessions, I've done training sessions where it's been hot, you know, and um, I think even my coach had asked me in the debrief that I filled out, you know, were there things that I drew upon, but in like that particular moment, it really was just focusing on the task of just like, what do I need to do to keep moving forward?
0: Well, I couldn't be more proud of you. I feel really grateful that I got to be there. Not that I'd be anywhere else to watch you finish, knowing the work that you put into it. When I saw you come down the finishing straight with tears in your eyes, I mean, I started welling up because I'd never see you in that that state. And I saw you in a pretty low place just an hour and a half, two hours before as you were halfway through the run. So even though we weren't talking in that moment, I felt like I understood it um, just because we've kind of I mean, I wasn't out. I guess I was out there at various points, of course. I wasn't out there with you, but I've been on this this journey with you, and I I've seen the amount of work that's gone into it. I wouldn't say the sacrifices that you've made, the things that you've prioritized to, you know, to make this happen. I know how much it meant to you. I know how hard it was for you to see your A goal go out the window earlier than than you would have hoped, but still, you found it within you with some help from our good friend Haley manning to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and and getting it done and i i mean i've watched you race probably i don't know 100 times at this point over the last 10 years close to that anyway i i don't know that i've ever been more proud of you than i was in that moment
9: i'm pretty proud of myself (laughs) yeah no i'm
0: you're a tough mean, cookie,
3: Gold.
9: It it means a lot, and you know my coach told me he was proud of me. Um, you know, I. It's not always. I think we forget this as competitive athletes that all have goals, but it it's not always about the result too. It's just sometimes how you how you do the thing and get across the line, and you know the. We always learn infinitely more from the struggles than we do from our successes. I had been
0: waiting a while to have Allison Mariella dezier on the podcast in episode 168 Did not disappoint. Allison wears many hats. She's a mom, an athlete, and a coach. She works as the director of sports advocacy and an athlete advisor for Wazelle. She's a co-chair of the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, co-founder of Harlem Run, a community organizer, and a lot more. In this episode, Allison told me about her relationship with running, the ways in which it's evolved over the years, and how she views her place in the sport today. We discussed how feeling out of place as a runner led her to create communities where people feel like they belong. We talked about the lack of diversity in the running industry and the work that she's doing to help change that, as well as her upcoming book, The Unbearable Whiteness of Running, which is due out sometime in 2022. We also talked about identity and extroversion, competitiveness and community building, and a lot more. Why did you feel so out of place at the time? You
10: know, there, there were a couple things going on. One, everybody was white. Um, two, I was, I'll say even, so I recognized I everybody was white when I got there. So, but, but this feeling of not belonging started before that. And I think it's because mm-hmm. of how I was coming to the sport. Like I was coming, I was training for this marathon really because it was going to save my life. Um, I had no idea what that would look like, I was putting myself in a position that I hadn't been in such a long time. Like I was leaving my apartment, which was a huge deal to go into New York city to meet a crowd of strangers and my mental health and future was depending on this. Right. (laughs) So I felt like there was a lot riding on it and I didn't, um, I also didn't want to open up and share all of that. So like I was holding back Mm um and then getting there and seeing that i did in fact look the part in fact two other women were wearing this the exact same outfit so it must have been like just the hot nike look at the time (laughs) so i looked the part but looking around i was like wow it's like a bunch of bunch of white folks it's like the people that i went to high school with um so there was that feeling and there was also the feeling of like other people seem to know each other there were no real introductions made And all of this was sticking in my mind, right? For when I would then create Harlem Run and I would make sure that at every workout we started with people going around the circle and introducing themselves, you know, we would break up into pace groups so that you would at least know the people in your group, right? So like all of these things that I was observing would later come to be what I would think of were important pieces of building community.
0: When did you first start to feel a sense of belonging in... The running community, whether it was with that team and training group that you joined to train for this first marathon, or maybe it was when you created Harlem Run yourself mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and formed your own community around it. I'd love to understand that a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yeah. You know,
10: there were moments of belonging. Like, I know that um, I remember, well, for example, when I ran the race that my first marathon, the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon, I remember, so with team and training, like everybody, participants would wear purple shirts and coaches would wear red shirts. And I always thought it was really corny that like people would say go team to each other. So I never said any of that in the training, but I remember when I was at the marathon running, seeing somebody in red, I was like, go team. Or seeing another person in purple because I felt like in that moment, like, wow, I really, I don't, the only people who I sort of know are the people in this program. And so it was this sort of like, I see you. So I remember feeling really like, I was a part of something when I was, when I was running that race. Um, and yeah, then there were, you know, there were other times during some of the meetups where uh, like I remember when I first ran 10 miles, no, six, six miles for the first time. And whoever was in my group, it was the first time that all of us had run that distance. And there was this like shared enjoyment around that success. And that felt like a really strong sense of belonging. But beyond that, in the running community, the times that I felt like I belonged really started with creating Harlem run and creating a space where I could write the rules and the rules meant that no matter what your pace was, you could show up that, um, you were always going to be greeted and acknowledged, right? Like you can still, to this day, you can go to running groups and like nobody even say anything to you and you do the workout and then you just leave, right? Like I see it happen all the time. And I'm like, why are you all even in community with each other if you're not going to acknowledge one another's presence? But so building Harlem run and finding other groups, like fast forward many years, right now I'm here in um, in Washington and there's a group, CSRD, that I went to that group and I felt like it was family, right? Because they also operate on this these same principles of nobody gets left behind, making introductions, you know, all of the representation that they show through their social media shows that they're diverse, not only racially, but in age, in size. And so, yeah, that those are the moments those are the spaces that where I feel a sense of belonging, where they're essentially built for us by us.
0: We're going to put a pin in that. I want to come back to it and dig into it a bit deeper. In the training for your first marathon with team in training, what did that do for your mental health? Just the process of putting in the work week after week leading up to this big goal and becoming a, a runner, I don't want to say for the first time in your life, but at this point of your life?
10: Yeah, you know, it really, what what the marathon experience, that first marathon experience did for me was it it gave me a perspective shift on life, right, It, which is like, wow, that sounds really lofty hearing myself say it back. But truly, my life had seemed, it just, everything was like so, Muddied and like it's like I couldn't pull myself out like I had gone to really good schools and done all the things that I was supposed to do, but I couldn't pull myself out of um feeling terrible and feeling like I was a failure, and there was no there was no blueprint of like what are, what am I supposed to do with my life, but the marathon gave me this very concrete training plan, like in sixteen weeks, if you do this, you will get this, and never in my life outside of school had something been so prescriptive and easy, right? Like, I mean, really difficult because you have to do that work. But if even a stranger can promise me that I do this work and I get that, then like, fuck yeah, <laughs> like I'm going to do this, right? So I stuck to that training plan like like it was my Bible. And what I saw was that, you know, it wasn't it wasn't magic, but that I was, these challenges, these physical challenges that I was doing really were very much tied to my, um, mental ability to push through it and to, um, stay in places of discomfort and not like wallow. Well, I don't want to say wallow cause that has, um, you know, I don't want to characterize depression as people wallowing, but like, you know, you're in a place of discomfort, but you're moving through it, right? Like you don't get stuck mm. in the place of discomfort. So that was a really, that was a really powerful lesson for me. And so it inspired me to go to counseling it inspired me to then apply to school and get a masters in counseling psychology because i really wanted to understand how does this work like how is it that i'm feeling better and if this is the case then i should share this with more people right like this should not be a secret that you have to suffer for a period of your life and only to then find out that movement can be a useful tool right like this is something we should all just know and talk about
0: The most listened to episode in 2021 was episode 174 with John Green. It was also one of the longest at two hours and 18 minutes. John is the 26-year-old coach of Olympic marathon bronze medalist Molly Seidel. He's also the head coach of Atalanta NYC, a New York City-based nonprofit that employs and supports professional female runners that are training to achieve their goals while also serving as core mentors for its youth mentoring program. In this conversation, we go deep into John's background as an athlete, we talk about our shared central Massachusetts roots, and then turn our attention to coaching, where we discuss working with Molly Seidel, of course, but also who has influenced his philosophy, how he views his role as a coach, where he has the most room to grow, and a lot more. Did you change anything in terms of her training in the build-up to London, or Was it one of those situations where you're like, okay, well, we kind of hit things right the first time. We know sort of what works for her at this point, what keeps her healthy, what keeps her happy. We're just going to do more of that and hope that with the experience that she gained in Atlanta and the fitness that she's built from being healthy for such a long period of time that it will go well. Yeah. I mean, so we, like the build leading into Atlanta was not
11: perfect by any extent of the imagination. Like I think she was hitting every like second or third workout. And so that was something where it was definitely like, all right, we like, we have room to grow, which is like, at the end of the day, that's the the best thing that happily could have. Mm-hmm. I mean, is like, obviously Molly is like still young in her career and um, yeah, looking forward to like the future. And so we were just trying to like get more consistent training essentially. And so, um, like I learned, we learned like kind of what her burnout like period was. And so leading into that 10 K was she felt, started feeling like pretty bad. Like, and I, I think she got a little burnt out from training and stuff like that. And her, her, like we looked, we got blood drawn and we looked at that and like, she was very tired. And so that was something that was like a huge learning, um, like event for me. And so, um, yeah, and so but it like what was great was that happened leading into some random 10k that I was putting together in Central Mass, you know what I mean? And so that was something that was again A great lesson that i had and then we led into uh london and that was a very short build like that was only eight weeks long i think um but it was a little bit more high intensity and so the previous build into atlanta was longer intense longer but lower intensity this was a little bit higher intensity a little bit shorter and so then we kind of combined the two leading into um leading into the Olympics where we were a little bit higher intensity, but uh, a little bit um, like it was a longer event as well. So
0: when you say higher intensity, do you mean just the speed of her workouts, more volume, more volume and and more speed? Like help me to understand like what dials you turned there.
11: So we worked on like bringing down her threshold pace um, Mm -hmm. and like volume as well. So she was, I I don't remember it offhand, but it was probably like in the 530s, 535s was threshold, kind of leading into Atlanta. And then um, like basically afterwards, we kind of looked at what other people were doing and are like, not other people, like and just being like, we're going to copy them. But we're looking like, okay, we should probably try bringing down the threshold a little bit. So we did that. And then we started getting in this. So we started doing like single workouts a day, a week and doing just like, a little bit faster so we brought it down to like 520s, 525s and so that was kind of a big step she took and and then in this most recent build what we did was we started doing double days and so this is another thing where I took I talked to Mike about and it it was definitely like a huge another huge step that she took where she was doing um, like we'd go out and do like seven or eight by mile up in Flagstaff at like 7,200 feet. And then that evening we'd go down to Sedona, to Sedona and do like four by mile. Um, and all of it was at like 520 pace. And so all off of like 60 seconds rest as well. And so it was just something that like. There's that like increased volume on those days, and we also we play bumped up mileage a little bit, but you can always go higher with mileage, I feel like. But it's just a dangerous game to play at the end of the day, and right. so you try, you try not to just like you try to find like mileage or like fitness in other places, if you will. And like we had so much room to grow in workouts, and we still do, and so that's another place where we can do it. And, um, yeah, so like her, like. In this most recent build, we didn't do a ton of like longer, um, longer like extended efforts, like ten mile tempos or thirteen miles at like marathon pace or anything like that. We did do them on occasion, but we didn't do them as much as we had done in London. And so that's another place where we can start adding those on into like the next build and stuff like that. And so that the goal is for Molly to have, or my goal for Molly at least, is to have as long of a career as she wants in this sport um,
0: and have room to
11: grow and um, have success.
0: I love that approach and it really does sound like each cycle has built upon the one before it. And I mean, as you described earlier, you had, you know, kind of a what for a lot of people is an unfortunate thing, but something go your way, and that's the Olympics being delayed a year, giving you like that that huge block of time to really develop other areas of her fitness and another opportunity for her to gain experience as a marathon racer, which I, I have to imagine going into a race like Sapporo I mean is is just like incredibly invaluable
11: yeah oh it was yeah I mean we both learned just so much like from her racing to me coach like we and we just learned how to work well together even even more so than we were previously and um that was just something that was just really really exciting and like a fun a really fun thing to like go through for sure
0: do you view coaching as a collaborative effort Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, it's,
11: I, I think if you don't take it as a collaborative effort, then it's like, it's, there's obviously athletes who don't like know as much about, um, like, about their, what they're doing and stuff. They're just kind of like, yes, I'll do whatever you say kind of thing. And like, whatever you, if you give me 200s today, I'll do 200s. If you give me mile repeats, I'll do mile repeats, whatever it is. And that, like, whatever mileage you tell me to run, I'll do it. Um, and so obviously they have workouts they like and they workouts they don't like. But, um, in that aspect like my goal kind of with with coaching people is to teach them and have them understand why we're doing what we're doing so if i ever stop coaching them or like whatever reason we kind of part ways and they are able to basically coach themselves the same way I was coaching them previously. And, um, my job, yeah, my job is to eliminate my own job, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, I love hearing that. I mean, I've heard other coaches say that before too. Like if you can coach yourself out of a job, then you're doing it really well. And I mean, I've been coaching for a long time myself and I've, I've always said like, when I stop learning from my athletes, then I need to stop coaching. Um, and it's not a situation where, you know, I'm an all knowing person and they need to be, you know, just, just learning from me. I mean, I learn more from them on a, on a daily basis and that informs my perspective and the decisions that we make. And and it empowers the athlete quite frankly. And it feels more like a team effort rather than, Oh, this guy's just telling me what to do. And if I, if I don't like it, I need to like keep my mouth shut or quit. Yeah.
11: And like I use the, like the we like i i always like for good or for bad like i always use we towards things because we are a team mm-hmm. at the end of the day and so that's how i view it like like we're doing mile repeats today you know what i mean it's it's a not a it's not a like you're doing mile repeats and that's how i view it and um yeah because at the end of the day like yeah i like for any athlete I coach they they should know or if they don't know already which hopefully they do is that like I have their back and um yeah I'm, I'm here to support them and and like help them in whatever they want to do um with uh, with running and outside of running as well you know what I mean this this sport helps grow friendships and builds friendships and something that like friendships that last for a very long time you know
0: Episode 174 with George Hirsch was a real treat for me. George is the 87-year-old chairman of the New York Roadrunners, and I want to be just like him when I grow up. We spent half of this conversation talking about the New York City Marathon, its history, its stories, its allure, and more. I also got George to tell me more about himself, his legendary career in publishing, which included a stint at Runner's World during its heyday, how he got his start in running back in the 1960s, what keeps him running six days a week at the age of 87, how his relationship to it has evolved over the decades, and a lot more. I want to transition to your relationship with running. You mentioned how you ran as a quote-unquote slow 400, well, quarter-miler in high school, in college, and then started running around the block in your late 30s because you weren't happy with how you felt and you'd put on some weight and eventually that led to marathons and then faster marathons. You're 87 years old now. You still Mm -hmm. run. You've been running for way more than half your life at this point. How has your relationship to it evolved over the course of the past five decades?
12: Yeah. Now you asked, uh, back then, did I identify as a runner? Well, I certainly do now. I ran 5.2. That for me is long these days, miles on the treadmill this morning. Um, and it's a big part of my life. Uh, now I mix it up a little more with, uh, we have a little workout room in, in my building here. And so I mix it up with an elliptical and a bike and a rowing machine. We got we got one of each of the four and I, I kind of love that. So I'm running few miles, not a lot. Uh, but I probably would say I run six days a week. Uh, much more on the treadmill than out. Um but now it's it's just baked in, Mario. I, I may miss a day, as I say. I try not to. So it probably averages out to six days a week that I'll do a run that could be as short as two and a half miles. On the long side, I'm probably running five now. How does
0: it feel when you're moving your body in that way? I mean, obviously, you've slowed down a bit over a lot. the years. I've
12: slowed down a lot. And <laughs> but does even, it still feel even the, same? In the last Even in the last couple of years, it's funny how fast the decline gets um, after 80. I mean, I was still... When I was 80, I ran the Brooklyn Half Marathon with a friend... And we were, we were, we went through 10 miles in just under 90 minutes. And I wanted to break two hours. And after the race, uh, I was a little despondent until he said to me, uh, George, he said, you know, look, he said one hour, 59 and 63 seconds. (laughs) 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 So I missed, I missed it by a little bit, but, um, that time has just, it's just been dropping, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the nine minute pace is something I, I couldn't do for 10 K and now I then I couldn't do it for five K. It, it It's just a fact of life, but I feel great that the moving parts are moving and that I'm able to do it. And I, uh, i I think it's you know we, we, I think it's made a huge difference in just uh, I mean I'm talking of the physical, I mean mm-hmm. forget all the friends I've made and all the good experiences I've had. I, I think um, it, it, it's, it keeps you in the game. I really think it it's a, a big factor. Could you
0: ever imagine your life without it at this point?
12: No. I mean it may come that running becomes walking. And by the way, a lot of people who see me running now think I'm walking. Just so <laughs> just so you know. Uh but if uh if it becomes walking, I have a friend. He's an amazing guy. He And I only talked to him about a week ago. He's 97. His name is John Cahill. He's the only 97-year-old I know with a ponytail. When he was 72, and I think I've got this right, he ran 305 in the marathon. He lives out in Salt Lake City. And he called me, I mean, like a week ago and said, you know, Any chance I could get some finish line seats for the marathon? He hasn't been traveling. I said, man, would I love to see you in New York? And he told me he ran a year ago, or maybe before the year before the pandemic, when he was 95, something like 15 5K races. I mean, and, you know, they get slower and slower and slower. Uh, he's
0: amazing. I love that.
12: Yeah.
0: Aside from the physical benefits that running's provided you throughout your entire life and the fact that you're still doing it now at the age of 87, what other benefits does it bring to you, whether that's social? I mean, you did say you run on your treadmill a lot more now, but does it help you to Think through things as say chairman of the New York Roadrunners and various other things that you're involved with. Like when you're out running, like what's on what's on your mind? Like what else is it doing for you?
12: Different things every every day. It depends on what's going on in my life. Could be could be Roadrunner related. Could be family related. I've got uh, four sons. Two are stepsons, but they're sons. Uh, seven grandchildren, and uh, they're all part of my life, you know, and so things are going on with them. I mean, uh, often wonderful things, good marks in school, or often issues that, uh, you know, people have. Uh, So, you know, I would love to tell you I'm one of these people who goes out and has all these incredibly creative thoughts, and then I come down and I, I come back and I put them down on taper, and uh, sometimes I do. Uh, sometimes I come come back and I, I jot things down that I think uh, uh, you know might be of some interest. Uh, but I, I think it's just it's just a continuation of what's going on in my life at that moment. And, um, but I will say this, um, if there's stress, stressful stuff and, you know, who doesn't have that? Um, the run eases it. It, it absolutely does. There, I, I, we hear this of course from lots of people, um, and, you know, more and more people are figuring out what's going on in terms of brain chemistry uh, that, that eases uh, anxiety and stress. I'm talking about serious mm-hmm. uh, stress with people, you know, clinical uh, uh, anxiety. Uh, I, but I feel that. And, and so years and years ago, I kind of assumed a, 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 a mantra, if you will, and that is, you know, you'd come home from work and you hadn't run, but, and, and it, it is, you know, when in doubt, do it. And it served me well, and it still doesn't mean I haven't missed some days, I, it, it, but I'm kind of on the fence. I'm a little tired. I don't feel up to it. A lot of my mind. Get out the door. Get in some miles, and I I always find I'm better off for it.
0: The last installment in this Best of 2021 collection is a recent conversation I had with my friend and sometimes training partner, Alex Varner, for episode 183. After 20-plus years of being a competitive athlete, and a damn good one at that, Alex's relationship to the sport is in an interesting place, and we spent this entire episode talking about identity, motivation, letting go, and a lot more. This one got emotional at times, and it will hit home with anyone whose own relationship to running has seen its share of ups and downs, which is most everyone, if we're being honest. I remember myself
13: back when um, Rochelle was pregnant with Ava. In like 2016, like the second half. And I was, I knew I was going to Portugal to race like in October. And I had been working with Jason Coop for a couple of years at that point. Um, And I remember calling him up and saying, hey, look, uh, after like this Portugal race, like I'm done with the coaching. Like we're, we got a kid due in February 2017. I don't. And it was I was stupid, not stupid, like naive enough in my mind to think, oh well. Like I don't. Have, I, I told him I was like I, I don't want to coach. I don't want any obligations. I don't want to be wasting your time writing workouts for me that I that I'm gonna feel an obligation to do. And then if you see me not doing it, you're like, why am I doing this for this guy? I'm spending my time when, anyways. I was like, better use of time. Just go of ways for that reason alone. But I was naive enough to think. In my mind, I was like, "Oh, well, like that means I'm I'm stepping back." Yeah. And like looking back at it, and I knew too. I rem- I remember having thoughts. I was like, "I wonder when I'm going to stop caring about this." Yeah. Like I wonder when I've had the same thoughts. I'm gonna like, uh, and and I wish that that the what I'm feeling now had come four years ago, five years ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, yeah. Granted, like you know, you see a lot of things in rose color lens hindsight's twenty twenty, 20 rose color lenses, and all that. Looking at like marriage and family and 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 you know and uh, priorities but i wasn't you can't force it you can't you can't ask that decision to speed up to be on your timeline for life and it was yeah now that i'm going through it now i'm like yeah i guess you asked if i had regrets the only regret is that I, i couldn't make this decision come four years ago
0: does it feel like a relief to you at this point to be able to to publicly say, as you're doing right now, and you've confided this in me before, that I don't care about this thing as much as I used to.
13: That's weird. Yeah, but it feels great. It's like, and it was funny. Like I, I, you know, I, I put something up on Instagram after Dipsy, and I didn't really consider. Maybe, like, the tone I gave it. Like, I just kind of wrote something, and I was like, I'm taking a step
0: back. Fill, fill me in here, because I I don't, so I, so I put it like, I don't see Instagram anymore. Yeah,
13: so um, uh, Tony Tony De Pasquale was out there at Five Mile Rock. Yep. yeah. taking pictures. Uh, and he has, like, an amazing set of... And there's another photographer whose name I'm blanking on right now. But you can find them on... It's, like, Tony with a Sony is his Instagram handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has this amazing... You know, he found a great spot. Five Mile Rock looks back at this little hairpin... And you just get all these people coming around the corner. And in the background is the bay, the ocean, the entrance of the bay. You can see, like, San Francisco and, in you know, kind of out of focus in the distance. Um, and so he's got this stunning set of images. And, you know, I, I put that up because it was a great picture. And then I was like, oh, you know, Dipsy was, went well, better than kind of expected, given zero motivation. And I was like, and now I'm, like, taking a step back. Like, I'm, I don't know what it means. It's going to be more bikes, probably. Uh, but I'm just, like, I'm just kind of taking it. I didn't at any time use retirement or reevaluating. Right. Um, and what well, is a reevaluating? Yeah. But, but just like in my mind, like the semantics involved, like sure. the, the, the word choice wasn't kind of as conscious mm-hmm. as I think it now I really maybe should have been. That sounds ostentatious. I think people actually care about what I'm saying. So there's that, but it was like, it, it kind of struck me where I had a bunch of people, you know, some were like, Oh, great job in the race. And others were like, I'm here for this. And I got a couple of messages around it. And I bumped into my cross country, my college or my high school cross country coach uh, last weekend after I put it up. He goes, Oh, like my wife mentioned to me that you've kind of like stepped back. Like, tell me about that. And it just like, it was kind of funny that. And it's, and it's, it's something that I've been met in parallel with going through the whole divorce process where I was like, I'm going to try to be an open book about stuff. Cause I feel like so much of, you know, people get so caught up in their own shit. And I'm no exception to that. But it's also pretty remarkable when you open up a social vulnerability to somebody, they've got a story to tell right back at mm-hmm. you about it. Like, I remember talking with a bunch of, you know, a bunch of kind of guys I hang out, like Mill Valley guys. We were sitting in Stulte Grove, and I was like, oh, this is, and this is like May of 2020. And they didn't know that we were separating. Like, we kind of got together on like Memorial Day, all sitting, socially distanced, drinking beer in Stulte Grove in Mill Valley. Um, and I told them, I was like, oh, we're separating. And it was like, You know, and and I was afraid of telling them that because it it feels like a failure, let's Mm -hmm. be honest. Um, But it was like, sorry. (laughs) Uh, It just made me realize that connections there um, you just put yourself out there. And doing it in that manner made the running so much easier. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, oh, like I put myself out around marriage and not a failure, but just like, didn't work out the way I wanted. Yeah, or that we intended, shall we mm-hmm. say. And then to put it out on, like, it made, just, it made the running thing seem so easy and natural. It's like, why, why wouldn't I tell people
0: about this? Well, there's parallels there. Yeah. Um, I think it comes down to two things. Identity, and this feeling of failure you've identified for most of your life as competitive runner. Yeah. For the last several years, you've identified as husband and father and you're still that, um, the latter. And I think it's hard and painful and scary to be able to say, well, things are changing. Yeah. Things are shifting. Um, Maybe I'm not as I'm not going to be as competitive as a runner as I, I once was. I'm no longer this person's husband yeah but that's okay yeah um yeah. and and i can talk that's, that's not a unique story yeah in the, in the grand scheme of the world you yeah. know
13: like and it's funny i, I think about it I'm but like, when you
0: internalize it oh, yeah.
13: you're like i'm, I'm the only I'm, person who's ever gone through this and then you talk to people and you're like you idiot you're not
0: but like, you think you're like i'm failing as a competitive yeah. runner i'm failing as a, a husband because i couldn't make this i couldn't we make can this figure out make it work. work yeah yeah and and i feel like those two things are sort of parallel in a way i mean in, in your case like both of them are sort of happening almost simultaneously which yeah. is which is probably unique but i think a lot of people <laughs> listening to that whether it's their relationship to running their relationship to someone else their relationship to their work like can completely resonate with everything that you've just said. Cause I, I mean, I certainly do. yeah um, and I certainly with the runner part, like I, I I'm in that place right now to a different degree. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to figure out like, you know, Hey, how, how much longer do I want to be, you know, Mario, the, the competitive runner? Because I, I do think like it's, it's hard to let go of parts of your identity.
13: Yeah. Yeah. And there was, yeah. i to your point. I mean, yeah. When, like there was a, just a, a massive, two massive components of my identity that got, I don't want to say upended, but like. They did. Yeah. At the, almost simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, and I, I go back to what I said earlier. It's like, I really wish that the, the change with running and my relationship with it had come earlier, but like, I, could, I can't force you that. Can't control you can, that. You can't yeah. control that. Yeah. Like, and, I, and at no point was I ever, you know, yeah, not, not doing the best I could like that. That's simple. And that's, it's hard to look back and, 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 see what resulted mm-hmm. despite your best efforts. Like, you know, shit doesn't go the way you want it to all the time. And you can't do anything about that. You can, okay, you can feel, you know, you can feel down, like, that's natural. But if you can look back and say, I, I did my best, you can't have any, like, you shouldn't have any regrets around that. If you have strong regrets around it, it probably means you weren't doing your best. Right. And, and it doesn't mean you, like, in all, you know, 100%, like, okay, th- there are screw-ups that happens. Like, that's being human and living. But if you can forgive yourself for those and just say, overall, like, I put my best foot forward. Like, what, what else can you ask for? Like, what, what else can you do? That, that's
0: all you can do. Okay, that's it for this year's best of edition of the podcast. A big thank you to Recover Athletics and the members of our Patreon community for making this episode possible. Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kofleski to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises, plyometrics, and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. It's available only in the iOS App Store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. The Morning Shakeout's Patreon community is where super fans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly, interact with me, and also gain access to some exclusive content like the Weekly Rundown, which is a Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, a monthly Coach's Corner podcast that will debut in 2022, and other fun perks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com slash support. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales and Jeffrey Stern for the editorial and social media assistance. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep this ship afloat. Finally, if you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for an annotated collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been the best of 2021 episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.